Philippians chapter 4. I just want to speak to the subject this morning of peaceful living. Uh, We're going to talk about peace this morning, what it is, how you can have it, uh, the promise that the Bible gives us uh, that enables that peace. And, and, you know, peace is one of those um, things that we're searching for all the time. We might even say it's uh, the elusive side of life. We're always striving after it, always moving toward it, and it seems to also evade us. It's moving away from us at times, at least that's the way it seems. And so it's the goal that we are striving after. Individually, we're striving for peace. As families, we're hopefully working toward peace. As, uh, as an organization, as a church, we're often, uh, well, I should say we're always striving, moving, working for peace amongst ourselves. We see it in government. We see it in all facets of life, this desire, this goal to be at peace. When you look at the word peace biblically, shalom is the word that we often see in the Old Testament that speaks of peace. We come to the New Testament, and it's the Greek word arene. Both of these terms really have the same idea. It speaks of completion, speaks of soundness, speaks of wholeness. And so it refers to wholeness in one's health. Uh, when we talk about peace and, and wholeness and, and, and all of that, we think of our health. When there's a, a crack in the health of our lives, then we're not, <clears throat> excuse me, we're not at peace with ourselves. It also speaks of the idea of wholeness within our prosperity, within well-being, security. All of the aspects of who we are and how we live, it touches, it impacts. This word also refers to the wholeness in relationships. Think about relationships. When relationships are broken, there's a lack of peace. When there's a, a conflict of interest there, when there's no longer the ability to trust another individual or even another nation, one tr- nation trusting another nation, there is a lack of peace, which leads to conflict on some level. And so peace is something that everyone in every organization, every government, every business is seeking after because there's an absence of peace in so many aspects of life. So the Bible has a lot to say about peace. In fact, it it is a favorite term. Uh, We come to the New Testament, and most, if not, I shouldn't say all, most, all but two of the epistles, all the letters in the New Testament, with the exception of James and 1 John, start or end with that greeting, peace to you. So it's a favorite term, it's a favorite concept, it's a favorite greeting within the Bible. It has a lot to say about peace. Seems to be hard to find in so many people's lives, and thankfully the Bible has something to say about it. You know, we we see the absence of peace all around us. Uh, We're constantly, I've heard for my 43 years that I've been alive, I've constantly heard people talk about, diplomats and government officials talk about seeking peace in the Middle East. That's been happening for thousands of years. We've yet to see peace in the Middle East. Uh, We look around a culture. We look around our society. We look around even our own communities, and we see a lack of peace. We see people rising up against other people, businesses rising up against other businesses. Everyone seems to be in some sort of relational strife, even within our own persons, many times don't have peace. There's internal strife within our own lives. It's this ongoing battle of hardships, regrets, illnesses, and the overall pressures of life that work against our sense of peace. 
It, it seems to be chipping away at us, whether it's external or internal. It seems that everything is working to chip away the peace of our lives like a river cuts through and chips away through the canyon. Anybody feel like that this morning to say, you know what, peace is a struggle for me. Peace is uh, a difficulty for me at this point. I'm sure it's on some level affecting all of us, even internally. Being at peace with yourself and living in peace with others are difficult, if not downright impossible. Everything is working against us. And you may ask the question, why is this so? We just sing about a good God. We just sing about the God who loves us and cares for us, who, who offered his life in, in redemption for ours to, to purchase us back, to redeem us, to cleanse us, to change us. Why, if this God is so good, do I feel like there's such a lack and an absence of peace in my life, in my family relationships, in my friendships, in my neighborhood, at work? It just seems like everything is hard. Well, last week we made the statement that these sort of things is common because we live in a fallen, chaotic world. It's just part of living in this world. Thankfully, that's not the way it's always going to be, but that's the way it is today. And the good news for us as believers is that though we live in this fallen, chaotic, uh, evil world that's working against us, we have a God who stands with us and can give us peace even in the midst of what seems to be a war. Now, those are contradictory terms. That sounds like an act, uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, oxymoron. That's the word I'm trying to think of here. Got time, caught up there for a second. You're thinking, you look like an oxymoron up there trying to say something. It sounds like it doesn't make sense. How can you have peace in the midst of chaos, in the midst of, uh, of war? And yet that's what we're going to see here from this passage in Philippians chapter 4, is that we can have peace even in the midst of difficulties. You see, peace is not the absence of conflict. We're going to see this morning that peace is the presence of God no matter the conflict. No matter what's going on in your life today, you can have peace. You could have got the worst doctor's report you could ever imagine this past week, and you can still be in peace. You could have buried a loved one recently or expecting to bury a loved one in the days to come, and you can still be at peace. Now, I'm not saying you're happy about that. I'm not saying you're rejoicing about that. I'm not saying any of those things, but you can have peace even in the most difficult of circumstances. Peace is not the absence of conflict. It's the presence of God in the midst of the conflict. Jesus said something about that in John 16, 33. I'd encourage you to go there at some point and read what Jesus had to say. And as we move ahead in the study here of Philippians that we've been working through, we'll finish on July 4th. It's, an report, it's important for us to remember, like we said last Sunday, a little bit about this church. The Philippian church is a great church. It's a strong church. It's an impressive church. But they're full of, it's, it's full of human beings that are flawed, that still have a tendency to struggle with sin and need the correction of the Word of God. And so Paul is writing to that end. He's writing to speak to them and encourage them to correct them in some areas, to challenge them in their growth. He wants to encourage them to maintain basic Christian commitments and to be a guard against the array of dangers that are against them. Internal, uh, external, doesn't matter. Just be on the lookout for them. He's just mentioning the growing feud between the two influential ladies in the church. You remember those two, Eurodia and Syntyche. He talked about how they need to get together. They need to resolve their issues. They need to bring their relationships back together, work it out for the good of their own testimony and for the sake of the gospel. 
The Apostle Paul wants to tell the Philippians to keep living the Christian life faithfully and experience the power and the peace of God in their lives. He knows, think about this, he knows perhaps more than any of them and more than any of us how real the struggle is to know peace. What's going on in Paul's life as he writes this letter? He's in prison. So he understands that peace is not the absence of conflict. Peace is the presence of God while you're in the conflict, while you're in the struggle, while you're in the fight. And like the Philippians there in the first century that we're reading about, we live in a world that knows much conflict and little peace. Think about what happens on a daily basis in our lives. You turn your television on, you turn your computer on, you look at your phone, you're constantly inundated with images and uh, uh, statements, headlines that come across with nothing but doom and gloom. Some of you tune that stuff out. I'm more power to you. I don't know how you do that. I am a news junkie. It's probably to my detriment. Some of you are a part of my tribe, and it's to your detriment as well. Oh, that we could turn those things off. But it's constant doom and gloom. The next major thing is always looming on the horizon. Think about what we've went through over the last 14, 15, 16 months as we have daily listened to a, the updated COVID report. Every news outlet, every, uh, every possible way you can think of gave us over the last year the latest statistics front and center. We track all kinds of things, the number of cases, hospitalizations, positivity rate, death, deaths, of course, and everything else. We listen to the reports de detailing the millions of people who were unemployed, who've lost their jobs, small businesses that were closing, economy that's collapsing. And yet on top of all of that, if that was not enough, we watched our nation become even more divided over social justice issues. That's just the last year. What a year this has been. Cities have burned. We've seen people die as a result of all of this. The movement now is gaining momentum when it comes to philosophies like cr critical race theory and intersectionality and all of these different things that are causing us and forcing people to rethink how we're to look at society. We're seeing it in the government, in businesses, in schools. The conflict never seems to stop. And in light of this reality, two questions must be asked. Is it possible for believers to know peace in their lives? I want you to wrestle with that question this morning. Is it possible for you as a follower of Jesus Christ to really know peace? And if so, here's the second question. Where does that peace come from? How can believers know that peace? Let's engage with what Paul has to say here. Philippians chapter 4. Let's read verses 4 through 7. And I want to unpack it looking at some resolutions, and then the promise that Paul's going to make here. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, before I get into the, the text here, I just want to point something out. It's not in my sermon necessarily, but it's one of the things that all week as I studied this passage has just stood out to me. Look at the passage that we just read. I want you to notice all of the words that's, that, that are large, that are like all-encompassing. For instance, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Not sometimes, but always. 
Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to who? Everyone. Not just a few, not just your family, not just your church, but let everyone who knows you know your reasonableness. The Lord is at hand. He's not somewhere off in the distance. He's here. He's all-encompassing. Do not be anxious about what? Anything. Not the hard stuff, but anything in your life. But in everything, even the little things, prayer and supplication, offer that to the Lord with thanksgiving. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And that good news that what Paul is laying out here is we talk about how to live peacefully. It's not just for a certain segment of our lives. It's not for a certain segment of our church. It's not for a certain segment of any aspect. It has overtones that touch every aspect of who we are. That's what we're going to see this morning. So let's just re- refresh of what's going on here. According to Paul, it's possible for believers to know peace in their lives, right? That's what he's saying. He's saying it is possible and it should be expected to know peace in your life. You should experience it, even in a fallen and chaotic world. It should not be a surprise then to see that the solution offered is not the removal from conflict. It's the understanding that God is with you in the conflict. He's not saying you need to remove yourself from the situation. He's saying, no, we need to insert God into the situation. We need to bring God into our lives. We need to bring God into our families, into our homes, into our church, into our workplace, into our schools, into our government, into our culture. We need God. He's the only hope for peace. And so, again, stepping away from the sermon for just a moment, I mentioned the social justice thing and and what we're seeing out there. And we're saying we've got to have justice there. Let me just say this. Humanly speaking, you can never have justice outside of God. You'll never know peace in this culture outside of God. You can't change laws. You can't change mandates. You can't change people and teachings and all of that because the problem is deeper than that surface level stuff. The problem is the human heart. And the only antidote for justice and peace is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which makes an old sinner who's dead and separated from God under the condemnation of their sin, it turns that person, man, woman, or child, into a new creature in Christ. Behold, all things have passed and all things have become new. See, that's the problem with what we're seeing in our culture. We're saying we got to change laws and, and all of these things, and that's, the surf, that's rearranging the furniture on the deck of the Titanic as it sinks. When you need a new ship to jump off onto. We don't need to patch this ship. We need a new ship, and the ship is Jesus Christ. Now, back to the sermon. In this passage this morning, I want you to see two major things. First of all, I want us to look at the resolutions, and then we're going to come back and we're going to see the promise that Paul gives us in verse 7. Because what we see here as we read through this passage are some resolutions that I believe Paul is kind of laying out for us that we need to make. And if we will make these, if we will resolve within ourselves to do certain things, then the promise is ours to have. Let me give you four resolutions. Number one. Resolve to ground your joy in the Lord rather than circumstances. Resolve to ground your joy in the Lord rather than your circumstances. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say 
rejoice. What we've seen throughout this letter of, uh, of Philippians is that joy is the theme. 16 different times Paul's mentioning some aspect of joy, whether it's a command to rejoice or to consider it joy. That sort of language we see here all throughout this letter. Now, no doubt the Philippians could not read these exhortations from Paul without remembering what they had seen in Paul. He's the one who planted the church. He's the one who heard the Macedonian call and came over to preach the gospel. And there in Philippi, preaching the gospel, he and Silas were arrested. Acts 16 tells the story. And rather than fussing about the situation, rather than getting mad at God, we heard the call, we came, we preached the gospel, we've established the church. Lord, we did everything you told us to do. Why are we in this prison? That's what we possibly would have been doing. At midnight, what does the Bible tell us that they're doing, he and Silas? They're singing. They're offering praise back up to the Lord. And that leads to the, the, the jailer there in Philippi and his family coming to know Jesus as Lord and sa Savior. And so a beaten, a bruised, a chained Paul refused to fall prey to self-pity. Instead, he praised the Lord. And so now Paul finds himself again in prison. He's in Rome. He's not riding from a chalet on the southern side of a mountain there in France. Wouldn't that be nice to be at these days? Beautiful chalet up in the Alps of southern France. He's not there. He's neither, neither is he on a beach somewhere on the Mediterranean in Greece. That'd also be pretty sweet these days. I miss going to Spain. I miss the Mediterranean. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. But Paul's not writing from any place like that. He's writing from a prison as he awaits the verdict of the emperor. So Paul offers his exhortation to the Philippian believers as he does that. Notice what he does not say. Paul does not say, hang in there, brothers. I'm trying to hang on too. Just hold on a little bit more. I'm really struggling with this. I know you're struggling with it, but let's just kind of yoke ourselves together and maybe we can inch our way through. That's not Paul's sentiment at all. Paul's confident. Paul's believing the Lord. Paul's trusting the Lord. He's not fearful. He's not wondering how he's going to make it. He's confident. He's fearless. He also does not say rejoice when your circumstances go well. But for me right now, I'm in prison, it's not so good, so I don't have much to rejoice about. No, Paul's the happiest guy in Rome. And where's he at? He's in prison. His life is on the line. He's waiting the emperor's verdict to say whether he's going to continue to live or die. We saw that in, verse, in chapter 1. His focus was on the Lord, and that's what he wants to see in them. So when we read through this passage, we begin to see all this. We should not rush past the reality that the happiest man, like I just said, is in Rome. It's an amazing thing. That's why he says, rejoice in the Lord always. See, the grounding of joy is the Lord. The grounding of joy is not how good your life is going right now. It's not how good your paycheck is. It's not that promotion that's awaiting you. It's not the fact that your family is healthy and whole. That's not where joy is. That may be where happiness comes from, but that's not where your joy comes from. Joy comes from a relationship with God. Joy comes from a relationship with Jesus Christ. See, it's never found in circumstances. Those things are going to change. Those things do change, but the Lord never does. Now, we have a wonderful theological term for that. It's called immutable. God is immutable. He never changes. There's a lot of things we could say. We could take all afternoon and just unpack the, the, this truth, this reality that God does not change. I mean, a couple things here. 
When you think about the, how God never changes, the thing that comes to my mind first is the fact that God's affection for you never changes. Hey, I was going to use a different term. I shouldn't use that term in church. It's a bad term. It's not bad like cussing, but you, know, you guys would be like, that guy is not sanctified at all, but I'm just like you sometimes. So let me say it this way. Yeah, I know you guys. I know you guys. Let me say it this way. You're a messed up dude like I am, right? Your, your affection for the Lord is, is wavering at times. It's up and down. You're hot for the Lord, and then you're kind of mediocre, and you're all around. That's human life. Our goal is to kind of move up the ladder. We need to progress in our faith. Many times what that looks like is two steps forward, one step back. Two steps forward, one step back. We understand that. So our affection, our hotness for the Lord goes up and down. Thank God his affection for us is not like that. It is constant in our lives. It also means that he's not going to deal with us differently. He's, he's not going to sometimes give us good things and sometimes not. He's always going to be fair and just. He's not fickle. I, I knew some guys back in college, they could never figure out, they could never make their mind up which girl they wanted to date. I mean, they're fickle. I like this girl. No, I like this girl. I like what she has. It's just fickle. The Lord's not fickle in his affection for us, not fickle in his love for us. He's immutable. He never changes Paul's circumstances were constantly in flux. We know that as we read through the book of Acts. They're up and down. Same is true for us. See, the circumstances in our life are always changing. Health comes and goes. You got good years, you got bad years. Wealth comes and goes. Sometimes we, 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 we watch the stock market. And say, I can do something now. The stock market seems to be going up. But then you always hear the refrain, but it's probably going to fall soon. And we got this mentality that we just, we can't, we can't take a step because we're, we're, we're locked in because we're so scared of what the future holds for us. Wealth comes and goes. Health comes and goes. Relationships come and go. Everything in our life is changing. So if our joy is tied to circumstances, then no wonder we feel like we're on a constant yo-yo in our life. Up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. Rather than living like that, why not resolve within ourselves to ground our joy in the Lord, not in circumstances. And look what he says there, always. Not when it's good, not when things are looking up, not when things feel good, but always grounded in the Lord. So how do you, grow, how do you ground your joy in the Lord? You begin by rejoicing that the Lord is redeems you. You see, I think the key to this right here, rejoicing in the Lord always, is to never forget from whence you came. That you were once a sinner separated from God. And Jesus purchased you. Jesus changed you. You were on your way to a devil's hell, and now you're on your way to a banqueting table fit for kings. Not because you earned it, definitely not because you deserve it, but because God in his benevolent grace and goodness has invited, hey, come in here, come in here. This is for you. I did all of this for you. Come on in. If we'll never forget that, then it doesn't matter how low we get, we know it's not as low as we were because we were once separated, cut off from the things of God, cut off from the people of God, but we've been brought in. We've been brought Near. That's the key to grounding your joy in the Lord. 
All of the things in our life that seem so insurmountable begin to pale in comparison when we have that perspective. Let me give you a second resolution. Resolve to be known for being kind and gentle. You see, circumstances often influence a person's attitude and actions, right? I mean, you know this. This is true in your life to some extent. When a person is scared or hurt, that person's going to usually act out of fear and pain. You've heard the statement, hurt people hurt people. That's a true statement. Hurt people hurt people. And so someone who is hurt will likely lash out at others. What happens here is fear and hurt will lead a person to become self-absorbed. They become internally focused. And Paul understands this, and he calls for believers to live differently. And this is what he says. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Now, the Greek phrase here is, is not easily translated into English. Now, Gordon Fee, in his commentary, translated, translates it as having a gentle forbearance with others. Here's the idea. It's the opposite of being self-seeking, self-absorbed. It's the opposite of being contentious. The spirit of graciousness, or this spirit of graciousness, graciousness is what we see in the life of Jesus. It's evident in his life and throughout his ministry. It's the quality of life that is required of pastors who lead the church. And Paul here is calling for it to be the attitude of all believers as they interact with one another before a watching world. We need this sort of spirit. We need this sort of mentality as we seek to reconcile with others. How could Erodia and Syntyche ever come together and resolve their differences if they don't come to a place where they say, you know what, I just want to be reasonable with you. I want to be kind. I want to be gentle. I want to be forbearing. I don't want to put myself forward. I want you to have the forefront. We need to be willing to give up our preferences and show grace to others. And so I just want to throw another question out. This, this morning is all about questions. What are you known for by other people? When someone looks at your life, we say, man, so-and-so, this is what I know about that person. This is what I see in her. What are you known for? See, the weight of this cause further enhance what we're going to see in this third resolution. So let's move on here. I'm Got a little time just left. Number three, resolve to remember the fact of the Lord's nearness. He says the Lord is at hand. And there's a debate here among scholars as to how we should understand this. Is it temporal or is it spatial? In other words, is Paul saying here the Lord is returning soon? He's at hand. He's coming. Therefore, live in light of his soon return. I mean, who wants to be caught engaged in sin when Jesus splits the eastern sky? Anybody say, you know what, Lord, I want to be caught red-handed doing something I shouldn't do. You don't want to look like your children when they're caught in the act of something, right? So that's one way of understanding it. The other way is to look at it spatially. Uh, The idea is that the Lord is near. He's present in our lives. Both are theologically correct. I personally believe Paul is speaking in the context or from the frame point of spatial, that the Lord is present. You say, why do you think that? Well, Paul's writing from prison. He's writing to a church that's struggling. And so, yeah, theologically, it makes sense that we will live differently when we know Jesus is returning. But we also live differently knowing that Jesus is with us in the midst of the struggle with us in the midst of the battle, that you don't have to and should not try to go through the conflict on your own. He's carrying you. He's walking with you. He's empowering you. So I believe 
Paul is laying out here the fact that God is with us spatially. He's near, he's personal, he's present. So what does the reality of God's presence do for us as believers? Let me give you just four quick things. It's a reminder that we're not alone. Man, you need to be reminded from time to time that when you face hard things, you're not going it alone. You're not going it alone. You've you got somebody there with you. There's the second thing I see. It inspires us to pray. See, when we know God is near, we're much more apt to pray. When we think God is distant, we feel like we shouldn't pray, can't pray. The reason when you're engaged in sin, the reason you won't pray, there was a couple of reasons there. First of all, it's you're just caught up in yourself. But also as a believer, you, you're guilty. You feel shameful. And so you feel this seemingly distance that's between you and the Lord. You're not distant from the Lord, but you're walking at a guilty distance. Positionally, you're righteous if you're in Christ, but practically, you're walking a guilty distance. And so as a believer, here's what I know about your life. When you're living in sin, you're not praying because you feel like God's a half a mile or a hundred miles away, right? He's right there. You're a hundred miles away. You just need to come home. So when we understand God is near, God is present, we are inspired to pray. Thirdly, it empowers us to trust, to settle differences, to show grace, and to love others. When we know God is with us and we understand what he's done for us, I am much more apt to work differences out, work the problem out in my life. Trusting people, working through conflict, Showing grace, being, showing deference there, loving others, even who are unlovely. Fourth, it moves us from being contentious and self-seeking to being gracious and generous. When God is with us and we're with God, it changes who we are. Our perspective changes. So we're no longer self-seeking. Now we are selfless, gracious and generous. Let me give you a fourth resolution. Resolve to replace fear and anxiety with prayer and gratitude. Here's what Proverbs 12, 25 says. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. Solomon is saying this. The guy who's carrying a big heavy pack for miles and miles and miles after a while collapses. It's weighing the person down. Solomon here is describing this, this concept of anxiety like a huge pack that's just pushing the guy to the ground. And most likely, we can all identify with this. Something in our life, either right now or in the past, has been so worrisome and created so much anxiety that we literally felt like we were going to collapse. It's what keeps you up at night. It's what um, gives you health problems. It's what creates fear in you, even moving to the extreme of having panic attacks. You, you know what we're talking about here. We face fear and anxiety. We know worry. See, we worry when we imagine the future in a terrible way. And that can just leave you in bondage, bound up. I like how John Piper says that anxiety seems to be this intense desire for something accompanied by a fear of the consequences of not receiving it. That's where a lot of people are is that they fear what could happen even though they know or don't know if it will happen. And they're just traumatized by the fact that they can't do anything 
about it. So the desire re- involves something we love. It involves something that we cherish. I mean, it involves things like money and prestige and relationships, all of those important things. And the anxiety comes when we just imagine that worst case scenario. And the thing that cripples us is that we can't do anything about the, about the possible outcome. We realize that we are finite and we're dealing with something that's beyond our control, beyond our capacity, and we are absolutely helpless and it devastates us. Anybody want to give testimony to that? It happens to us all the time. Paul acknowledges this powerless of man, but he's not advocating that believers stop caring or being concerned here. Instead, what Paul's doing is he's calling for believers to replace their fear and anxiety with prayer and gratitude. He's saying, hey, I understand what it means to be powerless. I can't do anything about my position. I am chained. I am in prison. I am awaiting a verdict. I can't get out of this, but I can pray and I can trust. And that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be grateful for God and what he's doing in me and through me despite my circumstances. So he calls for believers to redirect their concerns, to place them in the one who can change the outcome and sustain them through it all. But sometimes what happens is that, yes, God can change the circumstances, but many times he doesn't. But he sustains you through all of it. That's the good news in all this. So the antidote... For fear and, prayer, fear and anxiety is prayer and gratitude. How do we do that? Well, he says to pray, to petition the Lord. We are to bring our needs before the Lord. We're to itemize them before the Lord. We're to request his help. We're to do all of this with thanksgiving, knowing he's going to work all things for his glory and for his good. Paul says that to the church at Rome, Romans 8, 28. And in response to all of this, I love what Martin Luther had to say. He said, pray and let God worry. Isn't that good news? Pray and let God worry. He's much bigger than we are. He's much greater than we are. He's all-knowing, all-powerful. Let him handle it. We should be thankful that we can cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. So the antidote is prayer and gratitude. It's trusting in the good and powerful presence of God in our lives. Here's what D.A. Carson said. I have yet to meet a chronic warrior who enjoys an excellent prayer life. I can concur with that. See, when I'm worrying about something, and I'm not a big worrier. I have another issue. (laughs) We all have our issues, right? I'm a compartmentalist. Some of you men are probably compartmentalists too. Uh, I think sometimes I'd have been a great sniper not had any war. I mean, terrible things to say here. Last week I was saying something gross. Now I'm saying something about a sniper. But I just feel like... In my life, I can compartmentalize things, and I've got to work through that. I've got to make sure that I allow the Lord to deal with certain things before I wall it off and, and, and just kind of put it in its tomb and bury it. That's not peace. So if you're saying, you know what, I don't have any issues in my life. I don't worry. I have no anxiety. The issue could be not that you're trusting the Lord. The issue could be that you just wall it off and you don't think about it anymore. I have that ability to do that. So I'm constantly trying to to work through that and and drag those things out before the Lord and say, let's deal with this because I need to be made whole and not just stuff it in a box somewhere. Others are, you don't have a wall to, to build and to compartmentalize it. It's always out there. You just never bring the Lord into your situation. We need to drag it before the Lord and allow him to do what he does. That's what Paul's calling for here. Prayer and gratitude. Prayer and thankfulness. Thankfulness. 
Do we want to no longer be overwhelmed by fear and anxiety? Of course we no longer want to be overwhelmed. Do we want to no longer worry about the future? Of course we don't want to worry about the future. Do we want to be able to sleep soundly at night? Yes. Then we must learn to pray and trust the Lord. See, when we resolve to ground our joy in the Lord, practice kindness, uh, uh, remember the Lord's nearness, pray instead of fearing, then there's a promise that we can receive. And that's what I want to take a couple minutes and look at the promise. Look at verse 7. And the peace of God. So all of these things that we've looked at, if we will do them, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The promise here is this. The peace of God will shroud your life. It will wall over your life. It will be a guardian over your life. Again, the Bible calls us to a life of prayer. It calls us to a life of communion with God. Psalm 91, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God, in whom I trust. So we're to dwell in the shelter of the Most High. We're to be in his shadow. That's the idea that he's shrouding your life. He's guarding your life. That's the communion that the Lord desires to be in with us. And when we're doing that, he is the protector. He is the refuge. So according to this passage here, the way to be anxious about nothing is to be prayerful about everything. Not just going to the Lord when your world is absolutely crumbled. And yet that's the practice of too many Christians. We get on our knees when we have no other option. That's when we come to the Lord. If that's where you're at this morning, I'm glad you're at that point where you understand that there's no hope outside of the Lord. I've, I've exhausted every other resource. And so you've hit the brick wall of life. You've skint your nose on the brick wall of life. And now you've crumbled to your feet. Now the Lord can take you and pick you up. But here's my encouragement to you. Never allow yourself to get back to that point. But instead, constantly build a relationship with the Lord where you're bringing everything before him. Lord, this is what I'm dealing with. Lord, this is what I'm struggling with. And it's not just he's our, our problem fixer. He's not the mechanic of our life, but he's the Lord that we fellowship with, and we talk with him about everything, good and bad. So we want to be prayerful. We, we shouldn't be ostriches who just stick our heads in the sand and act like nothing's happening. That's, that's that walling off aspect of some of our lives. But we should pray and ask the Lord's help. We also shouldn't act like everything's smooth and rosy or expect everything to be smooth and rosy because it's not going to be. You're going to get a bad report. You're going to get a bad uh, story coming your way. Something's going to happen. And when those things happen, we must be willing to lay things down, trust the Lord, and rest in him. God is the one who stabilizes us. Do you believe this promise? Do you really believe this promise? Here's what I know about whether or not we believe this promise. Will you, we put it into practice? Will we resolve to rejoice in the Lord always? Because this week you may be tested. Right? You never, we never know what's going to happen. You never, if, if we thought about this, it would probably cripple us, right? I heard a guy saying... Um, yeah, I was listening to an, a sportscaster the other day, and we were talking about, they were talking about something in the future, and, and it was like 50 years in the future, and this guy's like seven, he's like, I won't be here. And, and this crossed my mind, it's like, we know death is a reality, 
why doesn't it always cripple us? I think it's because we just choose not to think about it. You don't go to the hospital, some of you. You won't go to funerals. It's because the idea of death just freaks people out. But it ought to freak all of us out, that there's coming an end to all of our lives. This week could be that, that, re- that report, that news that comes across your headline of someone you close to you is no longer here. How would you respond to that? Rejoice in the Lord. Doesn't mean you dance. Boy, I'm glad so-and-so's dead. That's weird. That's, that's evil, actually. But I rejoice in the Lord, though my mom is no longer here. She's with the Lord. And my heart's heavy and my heart is broken. My family is, is trying to figure all of this out. But, man, I rejoice in the Lord. He's good. He gave us X amount of years, and we've enjoyed all of this together. It's, it's good. I, just a f- few weeks ago, one of our families in the church lost a granddaughter who was special needs. And she lived, I think, to 14 years old. They were saying she shouldn't live past one. And what I kept hearing from this grandpa is, we've got to enjoy all of this time with her when we were never supposed to. I heard rejoicing in the Lord in that. Despite the heartache, despite the, the, the difficulty and the pain and, and the separation now, God has been good. That's what Paul's talking about. So as we look over and take an assessment of our lives, which we should do, uh, do you see completeness? Do you see soundness? Do you see wholeness? Is there peace there? When you think about your future, your health, your finances, your family, whatever it is, do you see peace being fleshed out in your life? Paul tells us here, God's word tells us here, we can have peace, and it comes in the Lord. Here's what we also know. I've been speaking, Paul's been speaking to the church, but all people can have peace, and it comes in the Lord. It first and foremost comes through a relationship with God. God is not some genie that when we get in a sticky jam, we rub the side of the lamp and he comes out and gives us three wishes that gets us out of that jam. No, God is the God who created you, loves you, wants to be in relationship with you, and has done everything that's necessary to buy you back from the horrible situation you're in with sin. See, the Bible tells us that we're dead in trespasses and cut off from him, and yet he loves us. The good news is he loves you. Bad news is you're a sinner and separated, but the best news is the gospel. Jesus Christ has paid your penalty, calls you into relationship with himself. And so we want to know peace. Believers, we know peace with God, and we can and hopefully are living peace with God. Today, if you're not in relationship with Jesus, you don't know the peace of God or the peace that comes in God because you don't have a relationship with him. We're going to have a time of response. Ricky's going to come. We're going to sing a song. We're going to do what we always do. And here's what I want you to do. If you're a follower of Jesus and you're struggling, just lay that before the Lord. Right? If you're the Christian like I'm wired and you just kind of wall things off in your life, can I tell you with firsthand experience that is not healthy? It's not healthy. You need to drag that stuff out. You need to open the door of your mind and your heart and drag that stuff out and lay it before the Lord and allow him to deal with it. And you're going to do it in one little setting. It's going to take time, but I would encourage you to do that. Man, if you need help with that, reach out to me, reach out to our staff, reach out to our elders. Uh, if you need professional Christian counseling, I have people I would recommend, but I would encourage you. You cannot have peace and, and no peace if you don't allow the Lord to do what he does and clean you from the inside out. So this is a time for us to say, I need that.
I resolve to do these things in my life. And if you're not in relationship with Jesus, this is the time for you, whether you're online or here in the house, to put your faith and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior.